You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Well, let's grab our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 5 as we continue our study of this incredible gospel. If you don't have a Bible with you, just look in the seats in front of you. If you grab one of those Bibles, you can find Mark chapter 5 on page 840. We've been studying the gospel of Mark, and as we have, we've been reminded through the series title that Mark is rapidly advancing through the life and ministry of Jesus, and he's doing so by taking stops at lookout points or at vistas where we can see Jesus for who he is, who he was, what his message was, where his time here on earth fit in the big story of redemptive history. And so this morning we're going to see an opportunity for us to strengthen our faith through Christ. On July 1st, 1940, this brochure that we'll put up on the screen was sent out to all of the residents in Tacoma, Washington. It was an opportunity for them to celebrate the opening of a bridge called the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. And on July 1st, many cars would gather to be able to be the first ones across this bridge, but what they didn't realize is that there was a problem in the engineering process. You see, the engineering process requested and recommended 25-foot deep trusses that would reinforce this bridge, because what people in Tacoma knew is that the narrows in this strait were susceptible to heavy winds. And so the engineers decided that they would actually save some money and tap into some new technology with these eight-foot-deep pillars. And this study showed through this new technology that if you crafted it in a certain way, that it would absorb the majority of the winds and allow them to save money, tap into new technology, and allow this bridge to be structurally sound. Well, as many of you know, On November 7th, 1940, just four months, a little over, since the bridge opened, the next pictures took place. And what they call this is Galloping Gertie. And the the picture over there on our left is the last man that was able to get off of the bridge as the bridge rose and fell like an inflatable at a used car sales place. It ebbed and flowed, and then finally plunged into the narrows to be destroyed. Now, I know some of you might be interested in the human interest side of this. There was only one casualty. It was Tubby the dog. And so for those of you that are dog lovers, you can groan. For the rest of us, it is what it is. I probably shouldn't have said that because I do have a dog. And I love our dog. That totally derailed the moment. Let's come back in. (laughs) The problem with this bridge is that it wasn't engineered correctly, so when the strong winds blew, it wasn't able to hold the cars. And friends, I just want to recalibrate us with what the concept of faith is, biblically speaking. 
Because I think most Christians, when they hear the the term faith, would just think of the Christian life. They might think of doctrine. And if you're here and you're just exploring the claims of Christianity, you might take the term faith and just associate it with religion. But I want to put a definition up on the screen that I think is a biblical definition. I know for sure it flows out of this passage. And I think that if we will own this, it will be a faith that is not only practical, but will be gospel-centered. Here's the definition. Faith is action-producing confidence that God will be who he is and exactly what we need him to be in every and all circumstances of life. So again, there's a lot of definitions of faith, but I think this definition, as, as best as I can tell, brings it all together. Because I think that when the Bible talks about faith, it reminds us that faith is the bridge that often moves us from moment to moment in our lives. As we go from weather to health to relationships to all of the moments in our lives, it is faith that moves us from one moment to the next. And if we think about this definition, it is a confidence in God's character first. Please see that. That is what faith is. And so in order for us to have confidence in God's character, we need to know what God says about his character. It is a confidence, first of all, that God will always be who he is, but then also that he will be exactly what we need him to be in every moment. Now, if it begins with God's character, then it's the right lens to look at our circumstances. Because as we will see in this story, God's character doesn't always live out in our lives the way we would expect, does it? But he's always what we need him to be. But I also think this definition reminds us that the confidence that we have in God's character and that he will be what we need him to be in every and all circumstance is an action-producing confidence. Now, I hope this definition will make more sense and be something you can apply more accurately at the end of this passage. Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. Let me read the passage together, and then I want us to see Four aspects of faith that I think will align ourselves with Christ. Matthew, Mark chapter 5, verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in a boat to the other side, the great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. She had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? 
And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping, and they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in to where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told, her, told them to give her something to eat. I mean, at this point, we could just pray, right? What an amazing passage. But I want us to, to move beyond just a cursory understanding of it. Move beyond just a surface appreciation of the concepts and the movement to the narrative to really dig into the treasures that Mark includes in this passage. I want us to see, first of all, an opportunity to ask yourself, is your faith desperate? You see, beloved, this is not just a sermon on the concept of faith. This is not just an opportunity to spend 45 or so minutes together just focusing on the facts of faith. This is an opportunity for you and for me to evaluate our own faith. And and that's why the outline is asking, is your faith desperate? We see this in the passage. The setting is that Jesus arrives on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Remember, there are three districts around Galilee. There is a Hellenistic or Greek or Gentile district. There's a mixed district of Jews and Greeks. But then this particular district is back to the Jewish district. And if we've been together studying the Gospel of Mark, you're going to see some similar concepts. He gets to the other side and all of a sudden, boom, there's a crowd. And it says there's a great crowd. And remember, the Sea of Galilee allows for somebody on the shore to see a boat at any point on the sea. So probably there was a lookout on the shore waiting for that little boat to come back to the other side. And somebody announced through Twitter, just making sure you're following, tweet, hashtag Jesus is back. And so Jesus comes back and boom, there's a crowd. But I want you to see something beyond that. It was there on the shore where Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, meets Jesus. Why is that significant? Because the ruler of the synagogue was a high level of the social status. He was one of the elders of the synagogue. He was responsible for the administration, for the the oversight of the synagogue. 
He was the one that would approve of someone reading Torah in the synagogue. This was somebody of the upper strata. But he meets Jesus not in the town. He meets him on the shore. And look what he does. He falls at Jesus' feet. Again, remember the significance of this. He probably had fine clothing on. He was known by the community, and yet he doesn't care. He falls at the feet of Jesus, which this is a Nazareth person. It'd be like for us here in the Midwest to say, this is somebody from Arkansas. Sorry if you're from Arkansas. Or when I lived in Virginia, it was like people would say, that's West Virginian. This was a guy from Nazareth. And this social elite man falls at his feet, at his smelly, at his dirty feet, with all of the crowd looking. He is desperate. Why? Look at what the text says. Verse 23. It says, he implored him earnestly, which, by the way, that's the term beg. Remember last week we talked about the three different beggings that were made of Jesus this begging is a desperate begging and why he is desperate is because of what it says in verse 23 my little daughter the the term little daughter is a term of endearment it's like what I say to my girls sweet girl sweet baby girl it reminds people who are listening of the intimacy of the relationship and the care It'll say later on in this passage that this girl is 12 years old, so this just reminds us it isn't that she's just an infant or a toddler. This is someone who the dad cares very deeply about. You know, as I was studying this passage, I couldn't help but have tears well up in my eyes. I've got three sweet baby girls. And let me tell you, if something like this had taken place, there is no distance too far. There's no cost too great. There's no shame that is below me to keep me from doing what this man did. But it says that his sweet baby girl was at the point of death. Let me just pause right here and say that Matthew says that the girl had died. And this is a passage where people would look at this and say, oh, look, there's errors in the Bible. It doesn't agree. But no, this can be explained. When you look at the actual language in Matthew, what he was saying is the father said, listen, my my girl is at the point of death. She has arrived where the only thing left is death. He knew that the situation was desperate. The seconds were clicking. All options had been exhausted. Beloved, I want you to write this down. There's three things that we must do when we are at a point of desperation. Number one, own your inability. Own your inability. When you are at a point of biblical desperation, you understand, I cannot do what I need. And that moves us to number two, own your desired outcome. Listen to this. Our desired outcome, the closer we get to the character of God, is not our own will. And yes, we can ask for healing. Yes, we can ask for the job. Yes, we can ask for a spouse. But it is secondary to God being glorified. 
Is that how you approach your desperate life situation? See, our faith needs to grow. That's why I said in the big idea of this passage that faith is an ever-growing tool. Because there are times and there are concepts in my life that this is stretched. But when the desired outcome is first and foremost the glory of God, the fame of Christ, then I can make my requests in the proper humility. But then number three, own the real solution. The real solution is God's intervention. And sometimes it is a miracle. Sometimes it is what you've asked for. But always it will be his glory. And so here's where the man is. Now, he doesn't have this fully developed theology. It's an opportunity for us to take this principle and then take the rest of the scripture and apply it. But it reminds me, I I love movies. And if you've been coming to Ascend for a while, you're like, yes, we know that. But I, I really love historical movies. And I love historical movies that are based on accurate facts. And, and one of them is Titanic. Now, if you've ever seen Titanic, you're like, wait a minute. There is some Hollywoodized parts of the story. And some parts you need to skip. But the scene that I love that is historically accurate is the sinking scene. Isn't it interesting that as the stewards are running through the halls and knocking on the doors and saying, you need to get to a lifeboat, people were joking. Do you remember that? People were cynical. People were complaining. But, but as the scene developed, their whole attitude changed, didn't it? And now all of a sudden, instead of saying, I want to sleep and not get on the lifeboat, people are pushing others out of the way. What had happened? Well, they began exchanging their definitions and expectations. They exchanged it for reality. They exchanged it for truth. But then they also had complete confidence in the lifeboats. And see, that's the transition that's happening with this man. This, this man was this social elite. This man had seen Jesus in the synagogue. The, the man knew that the religious leaders were plotting against Jesus. And so he was on the side by his occupation that was against Jesus. But he got to a point in his life where he exchanged his expectations and definitions for reality. He couldn't do anything more. He saw what Jesus had been doing to other people, and he got to a point where he had complete confidence in Jesus that he could do what his need was. And so look at the request that he gives. He said, come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. See, this is the desperation of faith that is required for salvation, isn't it? Friend, friend, listen, please. Your eternity hangs in the balance in what I'm about to say. For salvation, like the people on the Titanic, you must acknowledge you are in spiritual, mortal danger. That if you continue on the path that you are on, you will spend eternity in hell. It is not annihilation. It is not eternal darkness. It is eternal pain and torment with only the judgment aspect of God's character with you for eternity. And that is rightful because of your sin. 
but it also acknowledges that you cannot do anything to change that yourself. It means that you cannot begin to open up your checkbook. It means that you cannot begin to spend religious activity enough to get to a place where you pay that debt. And so you must get to that place where you acknowledge, I need the lifeboat. I need Jesus. I need his forgiveness. And part of that forgiveness is also my commitment to him. That as he forgives me, my love for him, my gratitude for him, my value of him translates into my submission to him. And friend, when that happens, you experience the faith that in principle is demonstrated by Jairus and you enter into relationship with him. And while that doesn't lead to your cancerous healing physically, it does lead to your spiritual mortality being healed. But then, beloved, listen, as Christians, this is also the faith that is required for our sanctification, for our process of becoming more like Christ. And so whether it's weather or health or relationships, whatever moment you're moving back and forth from, the faith that is required is this acknowledgement, this desperation. So the principle that Jairus is putting forth is an opportunity for you and for me to evaluate, is your faith desperate? But number two, is your faith greater? Is your faith greater? See, Jairus and the disciples and Jesus and the crowd all head to Jairus' house. It says in verse 24 that a great crowd went with him, which, by the way, let me just stop right here. For all of us here in Johnson County who see success all around us and maybe ourselves have experienced success, be reminded of the great crowds in the Gospels. Great crowds are often more harm than they are help. Great crowds are often more barriers than they are builders. Success, beloved, should never be our primary motivation. And we see that by the evidence of the great crowd. They're pressing in. They're thronging about him, verse 24 says. But then all of a sudden, we're introduced, verse 25, to a woman. It says she has a discharge of blood. This was probably something menstrual related that was continuous. It never stopped for 12 years. Now listen, we read this and we see the number 12, don't we? We see 12 years, and it's just simply a placeholder in a story, but for this woman, it was an eternity. Just as an aside, let me also say that, remember how I said the girl was 12 years old? I think that's interesting that Mark includes this, and and just think about this. The year that this started for the woman was the year that Jairus' daughter was born. For me, that's just a cool human interest side of the, the details. It says in verse 26 that she suffered much under many physicians and she spent all that she had on remedies. We get that concept, don't we? But, but when we bridge back to the first century, it gives more color. And, and in these rabbinic teachings of the first century, there were more than 11 remedies that were suggested, recommended, instructed for a woman who was going through this. Let, let me share with you three. One of them was to put together a lot of ingredients to create some sort of elixir that they said, this will solve it. If it didn't, she was then instructed to put wine in a glass, put it in her right hand, and to ask someone to come up behind her and scare her. 
like we do with hiccups. And if that didn't work, she was instructed to go get some oat cereal from the dung of a she-donkey. Ew. These are just three of the many remedies that were instructed of a woman who was going through something like this. So when it says that she suffered much under the physicians, emotionally, physically, and every way possible. But not only that, it says that it got worse, verse 26. Add to that, the Leviticus 15, 19 through 31 says a woman like this is ceremonially unclean. Which, by the way, beloved, listen to the significance of that. With Israel, the epicenter of community life was their religion, right? So for somebody to be ceremonially unclean every moment of every day for 12 years, you are disconnected from the life of your community. This woman is suffering. I'll see if they can put a a quote up on the screen. The process of enduring is a constant evaluation of between what is being asked compared to the capacity of the variables. This is what the process of endurance is. As we evaluate whether or not we're going to endure or give up, we're constantly evaluating the what is being asked and the variables. In my baseball years, I experienced this with the ice water bucket. If you're an athlete and you've ever rolled your ankle or sprained your wrist, you might be familiar with the ice water bucket. I hate cold. My family can attest to this. First swim of the year when my baby girl, my youngest girl, wants daddy to swim with her. There's about a 30-minute, should I, shouldn't I not, as I stand at the edge. I hate cold. So when I saw that ice bucket, I'm looking at what's being asked of me, put this thing in here for 15 minutes, as well as the variables, and no way. Now, another analogy is when I was in seminary. As a seminary student working full-time with two little girls under the age of four, there was often an evaluation of, how am I going to get the schoolwork done? And so the evaluation was, I could stay up all night, and the variables were, I could drink Mountain Dew. The variables were, I could go without sleep. The variables were, if I do this, I will be able to complete my tasks, and I often participated in that. See, friends, life circumstances are constantly us evaluating, aren't they? And see, what faith does is it moves the focus of the variables off of all of those details to the one variable that matters, and that's Jesus. And that's what this woman does. Look at what it says in verse 27. She's got all of this going on for 12 years. And she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. Now, what Mark does is he gives us a window into how she was processing this. Because remember, Peter is likely dictating to Mark the details of this story. And as we'll see, the woman's going to share, this is what I was thinking. So he gives us this information here. She was processing in verse 28 that if I touch even his garments, in the original language, the wording here, is an absolute confidence. I will be made well. Isn't that amazing? 
For 12 years, all of these physicians spending everything that she had, she had tried all of the remedies, yet she hears a report of this Nazareth guy with some amazing things that are going on. Most likely she'd never seen him before, but based only on the reports of Jesus and this limited information, she has absolute confidence. Beloved, think about what she was facing here. I don't want to get too vivid here, but let's understand what was going on. This is a woman who is dripping, who is smelly, who is ceremonially unclean. And in a massive crowd, with the ruler of the synagogue next to the man she was wanting to see, she decides it's all worth it, and her faith was greater. So friend, I want to ask you, whatever you are experiencing in life, is the faith that is required to get your eyes focused on Jesus, to have a confidence in Jesus greater than the potential shame, than all of the details of your circumstance. Number three, is your faith active? Is your faith active? The woman did it, and Jesus did it. I love this. It says that immediately the flow of blood dried up. She felt in her body that she was cured of her disease and the implication here that she starts to slink back into the crowd. But Jesus has other plans. Jesus has a lesson that he wants the disciples and every generation that reads this passage to understand. And so he asks this question because he realized that power went out of him. He's the God of the universe. And he asks the question, who touched me? Now the disciples are like us, aren't they? They're dealing with the horizontal. We often can't see the theological that is down the road. And so they say, why are you asking? Look, everybody's pressing in. Back in chapter 3 and verse 9, the same verb is used for the crowd, that they were physically getting so close to Jesus that he needed to have a boat ready. This is a massive crowd, a lot of touching going on. And the disciples are like, wait, what? So Jesus calls out the woman who touched me. Verse 33 says she had an emotion she was experiencing. Do you see it in the text? She was fearful. I'm going to ask the team to put a quote up on the screen. Fear is when we are confronted with what we can't control, explain, or fix. Fear is when we are confronted by what we can't control, explain, or fix. And this is a natural response. But beloved, I'll put another quote up on the screen. The Bible never condemns fear itself. Do you realize that? When the Bible says do not fear, as we will see in verse 36, the Bible is not saying fear in of itself is bad. What it's saying is what is your response? Fear in itself is not condemned. The emphasis in Scripture is on how we respond to fear. I want to ask you some questions. What are some circumstances you've faced, are facing, or are considering that you will face in the future that causes fear? How have you, and how are you, and how will you respond? You see, faith in God's word is always intended to move us to a point of action, And sometimes that action 
means we won't be dignified. It means we'll be embarrassed. It means we will be stretched. See, so often, as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, our response to fear is that we panic, that we deny, that we try to control, that we, that we numb, that we try to explain it away. But always, the expectation of the Bible is that fear in our lives moves us to the action of faith. Remember what faith is? It's the action-producing confidence that God is who he says he is and will always be what we need him to be in every and all circumstance. And that's what we see with this woman. Look at how she responds in verse 33. The woman knows what happens to her. She comes in fear and trembling and falls down before him, just like Jairus. But, but here's what I love. This is the expression of faith. She told him the whole truth. She tells him about her embarrassment. She tells her, him about his, her motivation. She tells him about all the money she spent. She tells him about her dripping. She tells him about her smelliness and her being unceremonial or his ceremonially unclean. She tells him all of this and holds nothing back. She's all in. Look at how Jesus responds in verse 34. He said to her daughter, which, oh, I love this. That is the same word that we'll see in verse 35, but we'll get there in just a minute. Daughter, only time he uses this term in all of the Gospels. My magic has made you well. Is that what it says? My garment has made you well. No, he says your faith has made you well. Beloved, listen, this is important for us in the 21st century where there's a, there's a lot of misunderstanding on miracles in the Bible, a lot of misunderstandings of their purpose or how they happen. When you look at the Gospels, especially Mark, more often than not, the Gospel writers want to make sure that God responds to faith. Now, it's not how much faith do you have, and if you have enough faith, then he'll do it. It's not your faith, it's his character. And when we get to that place, we can be okay with him not healing us. When the faith that we have and the confidence that we have is in his character, then we're okay. He heals us, great. That means he was most glorified by that. He lets us die, that's great. That means he was most glorified by that. That's the faith that the gospel writers are putting forward. And this woman, as childlike as it was at the point, trusted so much in the character of God that he could do what she believed he could do, but she would be okay if he didn't. When Jesus recognizes this type of faith, just as he had with the paralytic, and look what he says. He says, be healed of your disease, but look at the phrase that we often would look over. You see what it says right before that? Go in peace. What's the Hebrew term that would have been said, or the Aramaic term? It would have been shalom. And if you've been watching The, the Chosen, and you've been seeing how, to, how often they say shalom to one another, this was a recognition that you were part of the family. It was a recognition that we are in relationship. So this woman, who for 12 years was ceremonially unclean, Jesus says to her, shalom. That's what Jesus does, beloved. When we have faith in his character, even if it does not mean physical healing, and sometimes it does, it always means shalom in the body of Christ. This woman revealed 
that her faith was a faith of action. Is your faith active? Number four, is your faith ridicule repellent? I had to stretch to get this one, but as the narrative is unfolding, you can just imagine that Jairus is like, uh, guys, over here, hey, we were going to my house. The clock's ticking. And, and you can see the urgency in verse 35 while Jesus was still speaking. Beloved, this is a reminder, and I'll ask the team to put this quote up on the screen. The part of the definition of faith, what we need him to be, is defined by him. It's not us. The more you and I get to know him, the more comfort that provides, no matter how the circumstances turn out. And and Jesus is reminding us, Mark is reminding us by showing us that things don't always fit the way we want them to fit. When we say Jesus will be who we want him to be, it, it does not necessarily mean that fits our definitions and our expectations, but the more that our confidence is in his character, the more comfort that we have in this, no matter what happens with the circumstance. And Jairus is still struggling. And so here's the news that he gets. Your daughter, same word that was used that he heard Jesus use as Jesus addressed this woman, your daughter is dead she's clinically dead there's some commentators that believe that this was just in a coma but it's it's dead and there are physical expressions that will allow you to be able to see if somebody is clinically dead and the people come from the religious or the ruler's house and come to him and say your daughter is clinically dead don't trouble the teacher anymore i love the word that is used here. If we had more time, I would dig into it. You can see in your ESV footnote that the word can also mean ignore, and I think it was both of these. I think Jesus overheard what was said, and then he wanted to, he ignored it, and he wanted Jairus to ignore it. Because how the world defines things and what is horizontally true is not a limitation to our infinite God. And so Jesus says to Jairus, this is what literally it is in the original language, do not be controlled by fear. He's not saying don't be fearful. He's not saying don't have anxiety. He's not saying don't cry because your daughter is dead. It was true. She was dead. But what he's saying here is the same thing he was saying to his disciples, do not be cowardly in the moment you experience appropriate fear. Do not let your fear control you. That is literally what he is saying here. Do not be controlled by fear, but let fear lead you to faith. Beloved, that is the point of fear in our lives. When you fear, when you fear in the middle of the night, something downstairs. When you fear where this nation is headed, when you fear what the doctor's response is going to be to the test, when you fear, the gospel compels us and invites that to move us to faith. So the sturdy bridge that will move you from moment to moment. He invites three disciples, Peter, James, and John, 
to come with him. We don't know why. Maybe it was the size of the room. Maybe it was that he was wanting to invest more on this inner circle of disciples. But they arrive at the house, verse 38, and there are professional mourners there. It says that they were weeping and wailing, which when you look at Jewish documents, even poor people would pay for mourners and wailers. So you've got them, they're playing flutes, they're being loud, but you also see the depth of love that family and friends had for this little girl. The scene was chaos, verse 38 says. And Jesus says to them, she's only sleeping. He wasn't making it a medical diagnosis. He was saying that this death, this actual death is only temporary. How does it say the people responded? They laughed. Beloved, I want you to see the potential for ridicule in this passage. There was opportunity for Jairus to ridicule himself, right? Why didn't I request that Jesus move faster? Why didn't I arrive faster? Why wasn't I more urgent in my request? And he's probably in his mind going all over the place, ridiculing himself. We ridicule ourselves, don't we? Don't be controlled. Don't be cowardly. But then Jesus himself gets to this place and the people begin mocking him and all the chaos of the morning turns to chaos of ridicule of Jesus. That's inappropriate. How dare you? What is wrong with you? You're an idiot. And all of the emotion that had been pent up in the loss of the sweet child was now being targeted to Jesus and Jairus and Jairus' wife were probably thinking in their own mind of ridiculing Jesus. Yeah, what's going on here? There is ridicule all over this scene. And that's why Jesus says to Jairus and to his wife, do not be controlled by fear. Let fear move you to faith. And look at what he does in verse 41. Taking the girl by the hand, which by the way, this would have made Jesus ceremonially unclean. Jesus loves to move past religion, doesn't he? He moves past religion to relationship. And he he grabs the hand of the girl who is dead, and he says, Talitha kumi, which is in Aramaic. The reason why I think this phrase was included in Aramaic is because the church was probably very familiar with this, that as the story went on, the, the, the word literally translates into little lamb. And I think it communicates, again, the depth of love that this man had for her and the depth of love that Jesus had for her. Little lamb, I say to you, arise. And there's no waiting. It says in verse 42, immediately she got up. She began walking. This is where Mark tells us she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. Now again, verse 43 fits within how Jesus has been responding to these miracles. He says in verse 43, he strictly charged them that no one should know this. That's not going to be possible, right? is the ruler of the synagogue. There had just been all of these people that had just been sent out of the house. They're mocking as they walk out. A crowd had gathered because they had followed Jesus. And now all of a sudden this girl is going to be walking around. This is not going to keep quiet. But what Jesus is saying is, my message is on my own timeline. And I'm not ready to fully reveal it. But then you see the humanity of Jesus as well as the completion of this miracle, give her something to eat. Yes, I rose her from the grave, but the girl needs to eat. 
Beloved, we see ridicule all throughout this, but the faith of the gospel is intended to be a faith that is ridicule repellent. Verse 